Welcome to the teaching ministry of Temple Baptist Church. While we hope you can join us in person, our prayer is that this message will encourage you to love God and serve Him in a deeper way. Thank you so much, uh, worship team. I appreciate that. Welcome back to those who have been here from the very, very beginning of this series of our study of David. And a special welcome to you who are just joining us now on this journey. If this is your first time, by the way, here at uh, a church with us, we just wanna offer you a very special welcome. Thank you so much for sharing part of your weekend uh, with us here at Temple Baptist. My name is Donald and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Five weeks ago, we began a brand new series. We introduced this new character and his name is David. Now, for most of us who maybe grew up in the church or have any kind of familiarity with this person, David, we know him as King David. But long before he ever was given that title, long before he always had the crown put on his head, long before he ever wore royal robes, he was just David. In fact, maybe in his home, he was just Dave. He is the youngest of eight boys and two sisters. And I've always found the life of David so fascinating to study. He's one of the most fascinating people uh, actually in all the Bible. And other than the name of Jesus, David's name is used more than any other name. A lot of ink is dedicated to, for us to learn about this man. And we've said right from the very beginning that David is a, a complex man. He's very intriguing. He, he's so multifaceted. Uh, he's a shepherd. He's a hunter. He's a warrior. Uh, he's a general. He's a king. He's a poet. He's a theologian, he's a champion, he's an outlaw, he's a ladies' man. He's a musician, he's a faithful friend. He's a sinner, he's a saint, he's a failed father. He's a prophet, he's a worship leader. He's an adulterer, he's a murderer. He's a brother, he's a husband, he's a son. He's a parent, he's a leader, he's a hero, he's an empire builder. And he's one of the ancestors of Jesus. And he's given this label as a man who had a heart for God. The records really do show that David is a very complex individual. Because at times, David is so passionate. But yet on other times, he just kind of withdraws to himself. There are times that David is like so dependable, like you can count on David. And then other times, you're, you're kind of shocked. There are times that David is so in tune with God, he's got this righteous life that he's living, and then other times, he's absolutely wicked. In fact, he's a lot like you and me. In fact, he's just like me. And David is so complex, especially when it comes to all of his emotions, his life is like a roller coaster ride. He's got highs and he's got some lows. He's got a lot of smiles and he's got some grimaces. There are times he's so confident in what he's doing and other times he's so insecure. And what he's doing. He's an Eagle Scout one day and a convicted murderer the next. A great military genius and yet he can't even control his own family. There's angry Dave and then there's crying Dave. There's godly Dave and there's chief sinner Dave. And yet somehow God gives him this label as a man after God's heart. I don't know about you, but honestly, that really gives me hope. We find reassurance because we ride that same roller coaster ride. The heart that was for God was a checkered heart. 
And as I said before, there is so much in David that I wish I had, I long to have in my life, and other things that I'm scared to death that I do have in my life. And we are first introduced to this man, David, when he's 15, 16 years old. He's thrown onto the stage for all of us to see. He faces a nine foot nine inch giant named Goliath and he takes him down and he becomes the national hero. He's a rock star. Every baby boy born that that year was named David. He is the number one bachelor. Every parent wants their daughter to marry David. And songs are written to about him that soar to the top of the music charts. He has it all. He really is living what they would say the American dream. And then one day, he's a hunted man. One day, he becomes a fugitive on the run. Now, we're going to continue where we left off last week in our story. And and last week, remember, we talked about how David panicked. I mean, the man who writes, Lord, you're my refuge. You're my, my tower of strength. You're my stronghold. You're the one that I can depend on. He panics. David panics because he, he gets gripped by fear. He feels so abandoned. He feels lonely. He, he, he feels so rejected. And he panics. And when he panics, he did exactly what you and I do. He made up some stories to cover his tracks. He fabricated some stories just to cover his tracks. In fact, what David ends up doing is lying. He tells a bold-faced lie to a priest and it became a very costly lie, a lie because that priest lost his life because of David's lie. And not only did the priest lose his life, 85 of his family members were killed. All because David panicked. And not only do we discover that when he panicked, some of the lies that he told, we find out that he made some very irrational, irrational decisions. And that's what we do oftentimes, right? When we panic, all of a sudden we make decisions that we thought we'd never make in our life. And there's David, yeah made an irrational decision. Who in their right mind would go hiding in the town of Gath, which is Goliath's hometown, the man that he killed, their hero, he goes to their town with his piece of property, Goliath's sword. It is so irrational what David does, but hey, that's what we do when we panic. And then last week, of course, we finished off that David is on the run and, you know, he's, he's anointed as the next king of Israel. You think he should be living in a castle, but he actually he's living in a cave. He's just in survival mode. And we find out that some people find out where David is and they go join him. A band of men join David. And really what David does is put together a militia And the men that have joined David, by the way, are not the best of men. They don't have a great reputation. In fact, in 1 Samuel, the book describes these men as men who are distressed, men who are in debt, and men who are discontented. That's who joined David. These are men who had issues in their lives, men who didn't pay their bills, and men who were complainers. And they have abandoned their own, turned their back on their own king, Saul, and their country. And they have joined David, and they'd be willing to lay down their life for David. 
really they're kind of a, they're, they're, they're bad dudes. They'd pull a knife and use it and never give a, a second thought about it. David is almost like a godfather of a mafia. What's taking place right here? He's a fugitive and he's a man on the run. He's a wanted man. In fact, his picture is in all the post offices, right? He's on the top of the list for the FBI's most wanted. King Saul is in hot pursuit of David. And remember, Saul is extremely jealous, extremely insecure when he's around David. It's his own son-in-law. He's so jealous, even when someone brings up David's name. And he makes a decision, I want David. He sends out his men, I want him dead or alive. Just bring him here. And Saul is so threatened that he's gonna lose his kingdom. He's so desperate to pass it on to his oldest son, Jonathan. But even Jonathan knows he's not gonna be the next king. And Saul becomes psycho, so psychotic, schizophrenic, manic depressive. He's dealing with all these mental issues as he's trying to hunt down his son-in-law, David. Now, David lived about 3,000 years ago, about 1,000 years before Jesus was born, and yet we can relate to him in almost every area of his life. And this morning, we're gonna look at an event in David's life that is so remarkable that if it wasn't recorded for us, you may not even believe it yourself. And the story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 25. So if you have your Bibles or a smartphone or something you can follow along, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25, where we'll pick up the story. And just as we do, let's just pause for a word of prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful this morning for this incredible opportunity to gather together on this day. And Lord, we thank you for this book, the Bible, that we can read and learn of you and, and really be in awe of who you are. And I pray, Lord, that in, over the next few moments that you would, that we'd be able to catch those fresh glimpses of who Jesus really is. So, Lord, we pray that we would sense your presence with us here this morning. Do a work that only you can do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You there? First Samuel chapter 25. We're going to pick up the story in verse 2. It says, Then, <clears throat> excuse me, it says, And a certain man in Moan, who had property there in Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep. Let me tell you, this is a big deal in this time frame. 3,000 sheep. He is what we would call loaded. He's got a lot of coin. He's got a lot of ching-ching happening in his life. Okay. People have been very envious of this situation. 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep. Anyway, let's continue on. Verse 3. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and a beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. So we're introduced to two brand new characters, Nabal and Abigail. And what we find out is <clears throat> Abigail is this intelligent, clever, smart, intuitive woman, breathtakingly beautiful, and she's married to a, what we would call a harsh man to deal with. Like no one wants to get into a business deal with this guy. 
He's the kind of guy that would double cross you just to kind of make an extra dime for the payroll. This is the kind of man we're dealing with. Okay, let's continue on. Verse four, while David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. Stop right there for a second. It's sheep shearing season. Don't say that too fast. You may regret it. But what's happening here, this is when, okay, during the sheep shearing season, this is when it's, we would call this payday. We'd call this <clears throat> when the money is beginning to flow. This is when you finally get the fruit of your labors. It's all coming in. This is the time that puts a smile on your face because you know you're finally bringing the bacon home. This is the day that you're gonna make a huge deposit in your own bank account. And bosses are feeling quite generous during this time. And of course, Nabal should be feeling very generous because he's got 3,000 uh, sheep that he is shearing. Now, I've only been to one sheep farm and there was 200 sheep. It smelled, it was dirty, and I have no desire to go back. <laughs> I remember um, the owner sent me out to the field to get something. Uh, we were gonna gather some sheep to use actually in a, in a Christmas production. And so, yeah, the sheep, they're out there. And I just remember like trying to avoid stuff. You know what I'm saying? That stuff that's on the ground. This man has 3,000. That person only had 200. What David is saying here, in fact, well, let's just continue reading the story. It's sheep shearing. So he sent, this is David. So David sent um, 10 young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, Nabal. Good health to you and your household and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask, well, ask your own servants and they'll tell you that. Therefore be favorable toward my young men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find. What David is saying here is part of the reason of all that you have done so well is because of my men. See, we saw you out in the wilderness. You were ripe for the picking. We could have taken anything we wanted, but check with your men. They'll tell you, we didn't take anything from you. In fact, in the wilderness, Nabal, there's always those who are lurking around, ready to take something, ready to rip you off. But Nabal, let me tell you, because of our men, nothing was taken from you. You are where you are financially, Nabal, because of my men and I. In fact, go ahead and ask your servants if you don't believe me. And so pick it up. He says, please give your servants your son David. Okay, in verse nine. When David's men arrived, uh, I think I'm lost here. Go ahead and ask your men. To verify what I've just said, sorry about that. Really what he is saying, really what he is saying here in this particular story is that Nabal, because I've been so good to you, be good to me. We know that as, I think we call that the golden rule, isn't it? Right? Do unto others as, as they've done to you. 
By the way, that is not a Chinese proverb. That is not a Confucius say statement. That is not a Buddhist mantra. That actually comes from the Bible. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what David is saying. Listen, Nabal, since I've been so good to you, since we've been so good to you, would you be good to us? Nabal, since we've been so kind to you and your men, would you be kind to us? And in verse nine, it says, and when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and they waited. They're waiting to see exactly what Nabal will say. Because these men and what David, it all makes sense. Hey, you've done so well because of us. We've been good to you. You can be good to us. I think they're expecting a certain response. We'll look at the response that they actually get. Verse 10. Nabal answered David's servant, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Oh, I hear many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from, well, coming from who knows where? And David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every single word. Seriously, who is David? He's nothing but a fugitive. Everybody knows in our country, he's just a, he's a marked man. The king's gonna eventually get him. I owe him nothing. And I, uh, I didn't ask for his help. That's Nabal talking right here. So forget you, David. I'm not paying you a red dime. That's basically what he has said. And so David's men, they go back and it says they reported every single word that was told them. It'd be interesting to see what David's response is. Let's continue reading. In verse 13, David said to his men, put on your swords, boy. So they put on their swords and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the suppliers. And one of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail. So the men go back they say, David, this is, this is word for word what he just told us. And David's response is, oh, oh, that's how you feel about it, Nabal. That's the way you feel about it. Boys, get your swords ready. We're going to get some loot for us. And whether Nabal is dead or alive, it doesn't matter to us. We're getting what is owed us. And notice no questions are asked. None of David's men said, well, David, do you think we should maybe put a strategy together before we actually go down? How do we know what kind of defenses that they have? Or, you know, none of them say, you know, David, I'm really tired. I'd like to put my feet up on the sofa, sofa tonight and just kind of relax, watch a little bit of TV. No, they don't say any of that. They say, okay, boss, we can go. We can go slit a throat and be back before the end of the first period of hockey. We'll get this done. No questions asked. So what has happened here? Is David's immediate response. What has happened is actually David has lost, he's lost any self-control that he, that he once had. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Where someone has pushed your buttons to the point of breaking that you lose all self-control that you ever had. Well, that's, that's kind of what's just happened here with David. Now remember, David is on the run and he's been on the run for years. He's a fugitive. He's a hunted man. I mean, he's not that innocent boy that we first learned about when he was 15, 16 year old when he was on the stage and he takes down a giant. He's had a lot of life experience. 
experiences in that last little bit. In fact, he's gotten married and he has a failed marriage. Because at this particular time, when he went running, King Saul took his wife and gave her to another man. So he's got the disappointed of his marriage has collapsed. He's on the run. He's a hunted man. He's done some things in his life that he's regret. I mean, this is not the same David that we were introduced to just six or seven years ago when he was a young teenage boy. And what we find out is that David is basically just surviving. He's in survival mode. He's trying to make the best of it, living off the land and trying to feed his own men. I, I, I just can imagine the pressure that is weighing him down. And then David begins to justify what he's about to do. Ideas are running through his head. He is convinced that what he's about to do, I am justified about doing that. I don't know, if, has that ever happened to you before? Where, you know, you feel so justified, you were gonna give somebody a piece of your mind. They have pushed you and pushed you to the point of breaking. Maybe it's somebody at your work, maybe it's a coworker, and you have rehearsed the words over and over again in your mind, and you are ready to march right down that hallway and let them have it. Whatever self-control you once had, you've lost it. Well, that's kind of the situation here with David. That's why I say we can relate so easily to this man who lived 3,000 years ago. Let's continue with the story. So one of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail. David sent messengers from the desert to give your master his greetings, but he hurled insults at, uh, uh, at them. And, and yet th- these men were very good to us. Uh, they didn't mistreat us. And, and the whole time uh, we were out in the fields near them, nothing, nothing went missing. I mean, night and day, they were like a wall around us all the time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. Like he has overheard, he has seen their response. He knows exactly what's gonna happen. He, he's overheard that whole conversation. He saw the response of those men that are gonna go back to David and report. He feels at any moment there's gonna be disaster that's gonna come in that household. And he goes on to say that his master, Nabal, her husband, he is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. You can't reason with this man. Which is interesting, the employee is talking to his boss's wife saying, your husband is unreasonable. (laughs) He's unreasonable. And so she's given this piece of news. And it says in verse 18, Abigail lost no time. She acted very quickly. She put a whole strategy together. She whiteboarded the whole thing and was ready to go and put it into an action plan. She's a smart woman. She's very intelligent. She's a clever lady. And so, continue reading the story. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, uh, five measures of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on a donkey, Then she told her servant, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. So she's doing all this arranging. She's trying to cover actually what her husband has done. And she's already sent her husband, just go, tells the servant, just go, 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 quick, quick. Maybe we can meet him at the crossroads before he gets here. And then it says, "And and she came riding her donkey in a mountain ravine 
There were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. I don't know what's going through her mind. I picture her heart is pounding, palms are sweating. Like, I don't know how he's going to be, respond to what I'm about to say. So picture the scene. Here's this um, lady who's down in the ravine. Maybe it's the valley. Maybe that's where the fertile ground is. But she can see David and his men, and they're, want, they're coming down the mountainside. She can tell that they're ready for battle. They're, they've got their swords. Um, they're, they're, they're coming for, they mean business. And it says that she waited for them. And then the Bible says, the Bible actually tells us what David is thinking. Remember I said about justifying yourself? So David's coming down. I mean, Abigail's got stuff going on in her mind. I wonder if he's gonna, I wonder what he'll do once I try to, try to intersect with him. And, and, uh, but David is also, his mind is spinning. In fact, the Bible tells us exactly what David is thinking when he's coming down that mountainside. Let's continue to read here. So she sees David coming down. Verse 21, David had just said, this is what he's thinking, it's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of who belongs to him. He is fired up. He is angry. And he's rehearsing this the whole way, the whole way to Nabal's house. This is all going through his head. Who is this guy? I've done so much for him. That's how he pays me back? For my good, evil towards me? So picture this scene. Here's this wealthy woman, very uh, influential woman, intelligent woman, beautiful woman. And she's at the bottom of the ravine, at the road where he's going to be coming down. She's married to a very influential man. The Bible says she bowed at his feet. A fugitive, a man on the run. She bows. A, a woman of status bows to a fugitive. See what happens. It says in 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, my Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. His name is fool. And folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift, which your servant has brought to my master, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. She's a clever lady. She's very smart. And she does something, let's be honest, that a lot of ladies do. I don't know if the ladies, did you recognize what was going on here? Did you notice how she kind of strokes his ego? David, you're doing the Lord's work. David, may he protect you. Oh, David, 
you hunk of a man. Like he's, it's like she's patting him on his head. Good boy, good boy, good boy. And that's, I mean, can't we be honest? That's kind of how ladies get men to do stuff, right? That's how you get your husbands to come time to do stuff, right? Oh, honey, those biceps of yours, I, I bet you could lift that sofa by yourself to the other side of the living room while I'm redecorating. And you're like, I think I can, right? Oh, we know, we know, we've caught on. Oh, honey, you're so smart. I bet you you could balance the checkbook this month. She knows exactly what she's doing. She is waxing eloquent. And she says, you know, God has a great plan for you, David, because you're doing the Lord's work. And in verse 29, it actually says, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. See what she's just done there? She's just made a reference to Saul. Hey, listen, everybody knows you're a hundred man, David. Everybody knows the king is after you. But David, you're doing the Lord's work and he's gonna protect you. And then she even makes a reference to one of his victories. He says, your enemies will be taken out like a, like a stone out of a pocket of a sling. She brings that reference back up uh, to David. And know what he's doing? He's melting in her hands. <laughs> it's like he's like putty in her hands. And here's really what she's saying. When it's all said and done, David, when it's all said and done, what story do you want to tell with your life? What's the story that you want to tell? Because quite honestly, David, this story can end in two ways. Your story can end in two different ways too. Here comes a bloodthirsty man who's on the hunt for revenge. That's how David's story could end. Or she's saying, but David, your story could also end that you would be a gracious man that would be gracious to a family even though the family deserves your anger. And so David's temperature begins to lower. In fact, if you continue reading the story, he says, Abigail, you've had very good judgment and I didn't. And I didn't. Now, that was very smart of you. It was wise of you, in, very intuitive of you to come with this food and stuff for me and my men. In fact, in verse 35, it actually says that David accepted the gifts and said, I will not destroy your family. I'll not destroy, and he turns around and goes back. It kind of reminds me, it's like at the very last minute, the last minute disaster is prevented because of this lady. Kind of reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you ever watched the uh, uh, TV show, it was called 24, Jack Bauer. Love that show. And you ever notice at the end of every episode, it was at the very last second he saved the world before there was another terrorist attack at the next episode. But it was always at the last second. You know, you see that clock ticking down. There's one, there's one minute left on the TV show and it's down to 30 seconds and you just know Jack Bauer's gonna do something. And he does every week. For eight years, every week, he saved the world. Well, that's... 
That's kind of what's happened here. At the very last minute, she intervenes. And he accepts. And David goes back with this man. I don't know what's going through her mind. I don't like if she's like, I don't know, she was holding her breath the whole time, just nervous, like what will his response be? But it says that she went back to home. Now look, pick it up in verse 36 actually. When Abigail went to Nabal, because she's going back home, he was in the house holding a banquet like he was a king. And he was in high spirits and he was very drunk. So Abigail, Abigail makes the decision, you know what, this may not be the best time to tell him what I just did. So maybe we should let him sleep on it. In fact, it says, so she told him nothing until daybreak. So she's gone to bed. I don't know if this is going through her mind. Like, I don't know how this is gonna play out. What will he do if I tell him what I've done? I've kind of overridden what he's told we should have done. And so I don't know what she's thinking. But the next morning, she's gonna show up. Let's continue reading. Then in the morning, this is verse 37, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. And 10 days later, he died. It's like, I don't know, maybe he had a stroke or something. But 10 days later, he died. Let's pick it up. So now she's a widow. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise the Lord. (laughs) Wow. Not usually the response you hear when someone's passed away, but uh, that's uh, David. He's just praising the Lord. Um, Go down. Let's keep on reading. It says, Praise the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servants from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his head. Then, listen to this. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. Okay. So she's a recent widow. She's a widow. She just, he just heard, oh, praise the Lord. Her husband's dead. And then sends a, um, an invitation to get, become his wife. He doesn't even go. I'll just send a messenger. See what she's doing tonight and if she's interested in getting married. (laughs) That would be like, you know, people who text. Hey, I heard you broke up with your boyfriend last night. You want to be mine? Like, (laughs) this is kind of what's taking place here, right? He sent some servants. Hey, I I hear you don't have a husband. I'm available. And um, look what happens in verse 42. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and married him and became his wife. What? Come on, you have to admit that's a little odd. She's just recently widowed. Some guy comes from David, says, hey, will you marry me? She says, yeah, great idea. Gets on her donkey and goes and marries him. These are really different times than what we're living in today. What I want to zero in in, though, is the three characters that are in this story. Nabal, Abigail, and David. And each one of them have completely different responses to what is happening in the story. 
So Nabal, his response is evil for good. David's been really, really good to Nabal. He's actually protected his, his investment. And Nabal repays David with evil, even though David's been good. Then there's David's response. David's response is evil for evil. Evil for evil. Which actually is very typical of this period that he's living in. I mean, he's living in this history, this time when the rule was an eye for an eye, right? You know that? A tooth for a tooth. That's what you did during this time. Someone treats you evil, well, the only thing you can do is you treat them back with evil. They treat you with kindness, then I'll treat you with kindness. That's kind of the mindset. So this, nobody would have any problem with what David's doing in this time period. Nobody would go, oh, David, you're so mean. No, no, that's just how people live. That was kind of the mindset of the people during this day. No problem thinking this way. This is how the world live. But it's Abigail's response that is really different. Abigail's response is good for evil. So you got Nabal who repays good with evil. You got David who's going to give evil for evil, which kind of makes sense. But Abigail, I mean, David's coming to unleash evil. But Abigail gives good for evil. This is so much more like how the New Testament talks about living. Because in the New Testament, in fact, I have it, you don't have to bother turning there, but in 1 Peter 3, 9, uh, Peter is talking, he says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Where in the world did Peter learn that? That is, that's not normal thinking. He's saying here, be proactive and actually pour a blessing on people who've insulted you, who've been unkind to you. That is so radically different how the Old Testament is set up, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Peter says it, and I'm thinking, well, Peter, where, where, did, where did you learn that from? That's crazy talk. That's crazy talk. But I think what we've discovered is that though I always thought Peter might have been nodding off during those long sermons of Jesus, he actually was listening. He was listening that day that Jesus preached his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a long, you think I speak long? Oh, you should read that, that's long, right? And David wasn't nodding off that day. And he heard exactly what Jesus said. In fact, let me read it to you. This is Jesus' words. You've heard that it's said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Right? You've been taught that all your life. That's the Old Testament way. Hate you know, your enemy, but love your neighbor. That's, that's kind of the normal way people lived. But this is what Jesus says. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that is so radically different. That is so different than what we, the story we're just reading there about Nabal and, and David. But Abigail has more of a, 
a New Testament approach, which would be so radical during this period that the story is taking place. Uh, Amazing to me. And for those who are Christians here this morning, by the way, if you're here this morning and you would say, you know, I'm a a follower of Christ, I'm a Christian. This may be the most Christ-like thing you ever do in your life. Repaying uh, evil with good. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. As we kind of wrap some things up, I just have a couple questions. And um, I like actually how Andy Stanley put it. He said, do I really want to be even with someone that I don't even like? I think that through. Do I want to be even with someone I don't even like? To get even with someone that I don't like is to be like someone that I don't like. And do you want to be like someone that you don't like? So why do we act like people that we don't like? Because honestly, it's easier. It's easy. In fact, it's, it's kind of natural. It's kind of the natural response to do that. And what story, and what is the story that you want to be told with your life? And that's what Abigail asked David. David, do you want your story to be told that you're a man of bloodshed and innocent lives were killed? Is that the story you want to pass down, David, to your children? Is that the story that you want to be told? By the way, it's a great question to ask yourself, whether you're a Christian, a non-Christian, unreligious, uh, agnostic, atheist, what's the story that you want to be told with your life? Because every event in your life shapes your life. It does, it shapes your life. And so I guess the question is, do I want my story to be, I got even? Because that's an easy story to tell, by the way. Let me ask another question. What would it look like, just imagine, what would it look like for me and you to return good for evil? And by the way, as a Christian, honestly, that's, that's not even an option. That's basic Christianity. That's a freshman course. That's Christianity 101. But what would it look like if I returned good for evil with my ex? What would it look like if I did that to my father? What would it look like if I did that for that neighbor who ticks me off? What would it look like to extend that to a child who has caused you a lot of hurt in your life? To a dad who's left a lot of emotional scars, what would it look like to return good for evil? By the way, to do nothing is what we call mercy. But to be kind is grace. To give what you don't deserve is grace. And let me tell you, that is God's story. That is God's story. 
God returning good for evil. I want to, I really want to challenge you. Don't settle for even. It's too easy. It's easy. Don't write a predictable story. Write a remarkable story. You may be here and you may say, well, Donald, that's very easy for you to say. You live in this little dream world of yours, but you don't know my ex. You don't know my mother. You don't know my father-in-law. You don't know what my child has done. You don't know what my boss has done for me. You don't know how my brother has treated me. I get it, I don't. You're right. I don't understand all your circumstances. But I wanna let you know, these are not my words. These aren't my words. This is actually what Jesus has said. The truth is anchored in your Father who is in heaven. We're to try, I understand, we're to try to live our lives to be like our Father, who by the way, gave us good for evil. Because while we were yet sinners, like while we were still battling out with God, why we were evil in God's presence. God returned good by sending his son Jesus. So the question is, what will be the story that you write with your life? Will it be predictable or remarkable? Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, we're just so incredibly moved so many times by your goodness towards us. Lord, we read a story like this, and once again, we see what Jesus has done for us by extending to us grace. Lord, thank you that you were so proactive in pursuing us and our relationship. And Father, this morning, if there's someone here that is just struggling, maybe they're struggling in their relationship with you, I, I pray, Lord, that today they would just surrender it all, give it all to you. Lord, I, perhaps there's even people here today that are ready to write a part of their story that they're going to regret later this week. I, I, I pray, God, that you would hold them back, that they would reconsider, that they wouldn't just go ahead and write a predictable story that is so easy to write, but actually they would write a remarkable story with their life. So thank you. Thank you for that reminder that we don't have to live like everyone else, evil for evil, but we can be radically different, returning good for evil. We pray these things in all the most powerful name that we know.